0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode twenty-five. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Dave Polk of Sassafras Farm in Maryland. Dave markets his four acres of vegetables at farmers' market to restaurants and retailers, and through a wholesaler. Dave and his wife Jennifer started the farm in two thousand eleven after Dave retired from the Navy. Dave and I talk about how his career in the military and just having a career before he started farming has shaped the development of his farm and business, from hiring and training employees to long-term planning and making use of a wide range of resources. I really enjoyed Dave's practical down-to-earth take on how he's made his farm work and where it's going in the future, and I hope you do as well. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality composts and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. Dave, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Hey, Chris. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored to be here.
0: Really appreciate your joining us today. I, it's, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, actually Wednesday noon out there on the, on the East Coast in Maryland. Um, what were you working on this morning?
1: Uh, I have a small crew on the farm right now. They're actually um, harvesting um, fingerling potatoes as we speak.
0: Very good. I'd like to kind of get the lay of the land around Sassafras Creek Farm. Um, Where... I, and and I'm, I'm a Midwesterner, so I don't even know my, my <laughs> East Coast geography very well. I'm actually really from Seattle, which means I was really provincial, didn't really think there was life east of I-5 when I was growing up. So can you kind of give us the lay of the land with where in Maryland you are and how that situates you relative to major metropolitan areas and where you're marketing your produce?
1: Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. And Maryland is one of those states that geographically is not easy to draw. So don't feel bad about that. Thank you. Um Uh, Maryland is sort of L-shaped, and uh, the farm specifically is located 45 miles south of Washington, D.C., and for clarification, we're on the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay, not to be confused with the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay, which a lot of people are familiar with. Maryland's over there, and it borders with Delaware. So we're on the western side of the Chesapeake Bay, 45 miles south, and the farm is 80 acres, um, 46 of its tillable, and the rest is in trees, and we have a sandy loam soil, and we're zone 7B at this time.
0: All right. And now you said 46 tillable acres, but you're not farming all 46 of those tillable acres.
1: No. You know, when we were looking for land, I, I wanted options. My wife used to jokes about that quite a bit. and I said, okay, well, there you go. You got options now. So, um, no, we're not, certainly not farming 46 tillable acres. Um, what we're doing um, is farming a little less than four acres right now, of cash crops, vegetables it is. And this year we branched off in a slightly different direction. We started growing some grains. And by that I mean um, mustard, some wheat, some oats, and some rye. And uh, part of that was for a commitment for uh, a restaurant that we grow. The mustard was, for instance, four acres of mustard seed for a farm-to-table restaurant in Baltimore. But the rest of it is um, cash crops. And then the balance of the open acreage is continually covered crop year-round.
0: Okay, so d- continually cover cropped with annual crops, or do you have a, a hay field seeded down there?
1: No, you know what? What started here was when we bought the farm originally, I'm one that tries to figure out how to tap into all the great resources out there. So we got into an equipped cover crop program from the very beginning. The farm had a history of... Well, first of all, the farm goes back to 1655, if you can believe that. Maryland is a, is a state that had colonists in 1637. So our farm is soon there along, some of the old ag- oldest agricultural land in the country. Um, so eventually, the last 20 or so years, it was in conventional corn and beans, and we bought the farm. So the first thing I wanted to do was to transition it to organic production. So EQIP had a program in there to do just that, through annual cover cropping for three years. So I got on contract with the Equip program for cover cropping, and that required me to grow an uh, annual crop in the wintertime and an annual crop in the springtime, so we summer and, and winter. So we do that, and I've continued that once that contract came out because I think it's a great way to build organic matter in the soil, and I have this notion that it helps keep the weeds down just as well. So we do that, and I do that through um, – I have a really fortunate opportunity. We have a soil conservation district here. There's a lot of equipment for rent, and I rent a no, a 10-foot no-till drill that I use to um, put that seed that seed in annually, twice a year.
0: Wow, that's that's really interesting, and, and that you're able to farm that many acres of cover crops and, and make that work even without the funding from the Equip program.
1: Well, I have to sort of take a uh, an editorial note here, too, and say Maryland, because it's part of the Chesapeake Bay watershed, there's funding available with the Maryland Department of Agriculture for more than, I believe it's 10 acres, where you can be paid to, to put an annual cover crop during the winter months. So I'm enrolled in that program. And that helps offset some of the cost of the seed, which is the most expensive part of that whole cover cropping thing. The, the drill rental is pretty reasonable, but the seeds get a little bit expensive. So Maryland Department of Agriculture... Um, allows offsets me offsets that cost and allows me to put some rye and this, this recently they've expanded the program to allow to have legumes put in as well. So that's really appealing to like an organic farm. So that ends up maybe as being as much as seventy five to eighty dollars an acre. So it's a serious chunk of change that allows some flexibility and help offset some of those production costs.
0: Well and you're a relatively new farm. You're Sassafras Creek started in 2011, right?
1: Right. My wife and I formed an LLC in 2011. So we're in our fifth season at this point.
0: And so I, I suppose that gives you some room. Are you planning on expanding in the future as you as you kind of move through this, this teenage period on your farm? <laughs>
1: um, well, the short answer is we keep growing incrementally year by year. And because I'm a second career farmer and, and I'm not... Um, I'm not relying entirely we'll talk more about this as my sole income although the farm is in fact profitable has been since year three we take sort of strategic steps incrementally to grow the business i don't want to necessarily grow it too fast but we want to do it where we have a steady market and then i have a workforce that can certainly help me grow those crops and get them to market so each year we continue to expand the business expand the market and expand the crop production with it and um if i ask me where strategically where we're going i can talk about that a little bit later but it's sort of sort of a, an ongoing discussion about how big we want to get and um still haven't quite nailed it down yet
0: i think that scale that scale question is one that i'm oftentimes asked to talk about uh when i'm out on out on tour in the winter time i think it's a big question
1: for a lot of people well there's a lot of emphasis among the community, the sustainable agriculture community I'm speaking of about scaling up. And I hear that word a lot because there seems to be more and more desire to have more locally produced foods. And then the and then the people look to the farmers and go, When are you gonna scale up? And it's not as easy and it's certainly not linear to go from one acre to twenty acres. There's a lot of in between that has to get worked out. So I think that those details are take some work and take some time and take some conscious effort to really figure out what the next step is and when, what all the the infrastructure and stuff that goes in behind it. And so it's not an easy question to answer, but I have given it a lot of thought and um, we can kind of dive into that a little bit later in your interview.
0: Right. And I want to, I want to get into a being a second career farmer as well. Cause I think that's a really, I think there's a lot of people out there that are doing that. And I think it's, it's something that because we tend to focus on experienced farmers, both in workshops and in doing podcasts, you know, a lot of times we're talking to folks that are, that have been in the business for you know, 20, 30, 40 years and most second career farmers haven't. So I think it'd be interesting to get into that as well. But I want to just ask you kind of finish laying the groundwork here, where and how are you marketing your produce?
1: Um, That's a good question. Most of our produce, more than about 60% of it is sold through a local farmer's market in our county. And and to kind of set the stage, we call it Southern Maryland, which is five counties, and we're in the southernmost county, which is St. Mary's County. And um, there's a large Navy base here. And if you didn't mention already, I'm i a retired Navy military. It's a large Navy base here. It's a professional group of people, engineers and like that. And so there's a really vibrant farmer's market scene that's beginning to develop the last five or six years because the Navy put a lot of people down here since the mid-90s. So that's a good portion of our business. And then we do about 30% to restaurants some locally, but I was able to get connected to an amazing farm-to-table restaurant group up in Baltimore. So we've been selling to them for five years. And then I have a natural food store locally here. We're in Leonardtown, Maryland, where we are farms near. And then also sell a little bit to a consolidator in our region and occasionally to another larger organic um, produce store in the area.
0: Okay. So really doing direct marketing to the farmer's market and then additional, uh, both sales direct to retailers, but then also doing some uh, to people that are that are selling it on to retailers.
1: Right, right. I don't have a CSA. We talk about it a lot. Our customers ask us about it. And um, it was something that I saw a lot. I've seen a lot of new farmers get started because they need that startup capital. That wasn't necessarily our situation. And I didn't feel comfortable as a new farmer taking on the responsibility of having to produce something. I didn't want that kind of added pressure. So Here we are five years later, and we toy around with the CSA, and um, it's something that's an ongoing conversation between my wife, who's my business partner, and myself
0: now is your wife also involved in or you said she's your business partner is she working on the farm with you
1: no my wife is a full-time government employee she works for the navy as an environmental scientist Um, she really likes her work she's really good at it but that's to say that she spends pretty much every free time which is um, on when she's back on the farm helping me in one way or another Um, her primary focus is uh, the farmer's market, that's become her real her real passion. She, along with the small crew, we run the farmer's market every Saturday. We start selling from April. We go all the way in through November. Uh, we could probably go longer if we wanted to. At some point, you need a break. She does that and does it really well. She also manages the books. She manages our payroll, um, and she also does a lot of the just um, scene walking the farm with me. And and she's a master gardener. So she has a lot of different perspectives and often something I might have forgotten. She reminds me about that. So she's intricately involved in the farm operation for sure.
0: So you have a couple of employees, uh, full-time, part-time?
1: Let me ask you, how do you define full-time and part-time in the farming Mm -hmm. lexicon? boy
0: that's that's a rough one i always think of full time as people that show up every day and eat lunch at the farm um you know part time would be somebody that is either not eating lunch at the farm because they're they're there in the morning or they're in the afternoon or or they're coming just a couple days a week, but I know it's kind of a it's a lot fuzzier definition when when the farmers work in 80 hours a week than it is when everybody's on a 40 hour a week schedule.
1: Well, let me answer it this way: We have eight people on payroll. It sounds like a lot for a four acre farm, but it's really it's not as many as you might think. But about half those people are on work the farmers market, and my wife puts that schedule together. So it's kind of a rotation because not everybody wants to work you know give it their Saturday from week after week after week. So there's a crew of people that do the farmers market. And then with me on the farm, I have as many as three to four people on the farm any one given day. When we're getting ready for, on Fridays for market, and we also are harvesting for our restaurant accounts up in Baltimore, I might have as many as four people. And certainly as we move into the fall, when we're still coming out of summer crops, where we got a ton of uh, winter crops coming in too, so we need a lot of hands to do all that kind of work. So eight is the number, but on the farm it's anywhere from three to four. And most of them work every day and we eat lunch together because we like to eat lunch together. We think that's a nice way to kind of bond and be part of the farm and enjoy the food and all that stuff. Are you providing lunch for your crew? Not at this time. I've thought about doing that, but I don't have time to cook. So I think what I would do is try to find someone to, I've seen farmers where one of the employees was, was given the detail to go prepare the food in advance and, um, and then I've seen operations where they bring you, bring in a chef or something once a week or so. So I think that's a nice thing. But right now, where he brings a bag lunch, sometimes we share. Yeah. Certainly, like watermelons are in right now, and we got plenty of those. So we like to pass those around.
0: Yeah, there are some advantages to being in Zone Seven there with watermelons being ready already. <laughs> that's that's oh, yeah. kind of nice. Yeah, up here we're still, I think, a couple weeks away from watermelon season uh, here in the in southern Wisconsin. So, um. So, I think it's really it's interesting you're not the only person I know who's decided to I mean, get off the corporate ladder in one way or another, although you weren't really on the corporate ladder like you mentioned you were in the military and that's part of what interested me about about your story is that i mean you seem to have you've dived into the farm it seems like it's something that's really that's really working for you as a second career and I guess i'd like to I'd like to spend some time reflecting on. You know, what's good and what's bad about being a second career farmer, as well as how your career, either as it was in the military or just the fact of having a career uh, prior to getting into farming, has informed the work that you do now.
1: Yeah, well, maybe I would sort of back up a second and sort of set the tone by saying neither my wife nor myself grew up on on a farm. Like a lot of new farmers, we're suburbanites. We don't have an ag background. I went to got a business degree and a master's degree in business. My wife is a scientist by training. But the theme there is we both had gardens as kids growing up, and then when we got married, we always tried to have a little vegetable garden as the Navy moved us from one duty station to another. And then when we finally ended up in Southern Maryland and we bought a small house in 2005, it had a little land, and we started growing acreage there, and it, it got bigger and— It got bigger, and as my job got more stressful, I moved out of one field and into another. That farm became sort of the, it was therapeutic. It was the anecdote for stress relief for me. And so that really kind of set the stage for something that I enjoyed and my wife as much to what we might do as when the inevitable point comes that you need to retire from the military. So we began sort of a journey to figure out if this is something we wanted to do, um, we were producing a lot of food, and one of the steps we took before I left the military was to try our local farmer's market. So we mustered up everything we had, um, and we went there for about, I think, more like a hobby scale. We went there for three weeks, and we sold everything we had, um, and it was really well received. And that was a real boost on the possibilities of maybe getting into this farming thing. I really hadn't thought about doing it seriously as I was moving to the, to the end of my career. But I brought a lot a lot a lot of interest to me and it also sort of scratched the, the desire to do all the things the ideology that a lot of new farmers get involved with, you know, which is to be part of something bigger than yourself, great things, be part of an environmental social movement. All that stuff appealed to both of us and to me as well. So we started exploring the regions about about whether this is something we really wanted to do. And as we moved around, we decided to kind of benchmark the best places in the country. Because as a military person, we weren't really wed to any physical location, right? Right. So, because um, we'd been all over across the country and we had family that was my wife and I have family in Seattle. Um, so we went up there and looked around. We went down to Portland because, you know, you want to be next to family, but not necessarily right that close to family. So Portland seemed <laughs> like seemed like a good place to yes. be. My mom's from Portland, but no one's down there still. So we looked down there and went to farms. Um, You start reading about these things, and you realize there's a pretty active movement in North Carolina. And I know you interviewed Alex Hitt recently, and so there's a great farm tour series put on by the Carolina Farm Stewardship every year on the weekend. And we went down there a couple times, and you drive around and see as many amazing farms in that, that region down there, including Alex and I'm a person that has to sort of see something before I can kind of realize it, and that was really helpful. We went down a couple of years and saw a lot of small, sustainable farms, and then to sort of paint the picture, um, we went up to New England area and upstate New York because we read a lot of things about people doing wonderful stuff up there. So then it all kind of came full circle. When we were casually looking for farmland at the same time, as well as here, because my wife had a good career, still does, and wanted to maybe possibly stay local, keep our options open, and this farm that we currently have right now came available, and so we took the plunge and bought it. And... And then we decided somewhere about six months before I decided to retire from the military that I thought I would give this a go. I would try for 12 months and see how it worked out. And if it didn't, I wouldn't be so stale from my previous career. I could get back in and, and hop on that corporate ladder and continue to develop a second career that way. Um, so you'll have to refresh me where I'm going with this because I can't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: think it's really interesting I mean, you, that you had... You had an MBA and a career in the military, the, and then took that and decided to make this jump into into agriculture. What did what did people who were in the service with you think of your plans when you said six <laughs> months out?
1: Hey, I,
0: I I'm gonna when I get out of the military, I'm gonna go be an organic vegetable farmer.
1: Well, you know, it was sort of funny because I was doing program management the last eight years. In the service, and it got to the point where I said earlier, the the farm was well, a was a large garden, but it became sort of an anecdote for stress relief. And then, if you're done program management, I don't care what if you're in the service or otherwise, there's a lot of things that you have to be a lot of balls to juggle, and it's a lot can be really stressful. So you need some sort of outlet. For me, that was the outlet. I couldn't look forward to getting home at the end of the day. And It might be eight o'clock at night, grabbing a hoe and going out there and weeding green beans or something. It just really appealed to me and. Um, so, and the, and at the same time we were producing a lot of food. So I had about 600 people in the staff that was working where I was, and I would bring that into the cafeteria and everybody likes fresh garden produce, right? Yeah. So they said, Hey, this is really cool. You, you should, and the, I got a lot of people saying, you know, you should do that. Maybe they were joking or not serious, but, but I kind of kept thinking maybe there was something to this. So they were always very supportive. Um, and I think a lot of them respect the idea that we're doing something a little bit different. They probably think I'm a lost my mind a little bit, but I had a good friend that reminded me that I always kind of marched to my own beat anyway. And, and then he added, you know, um, I have to paraphrase this. You always had the, you know, sort of the intestinal fortitude to do something that someone else would to do. <laughs> if you get my meaning there, <laughs> I do. Yeah, I do. So um, they've been very supportive, and even my parents came around, think it's super cool. What what they realize, people in general, and maybe people like my parents, going, you know, hey, that's okay, that's different. And then when you talk to people, my son has and his wife have an organic vegetable farm, I go, oh, that's really neat. And next thing and know, they go, hey, that's pretty cool what you're doing. I hear a lot of people saying that's kind of cool. So, um, I never really looked back, but what I was going to say was when I decided, to, cause I always wanted a safety net. Cause, um, so, uh, I, just, my wife and I decided to agree, we'll, we'll try, I will try this for one year. And I decided I need to get some training under my belt. And I read about an organization here in Maryland that had a beginner farmer training program. And that is um, an organization that does sustainable farming called uh, Future Harvest CASA, Chesapeake Alliance for Sustainable Agriculture, which now, five years later, I'm a board member. Um, but they have a really cool training program, and I it began in 2009, and I applied for it and for the season of 2011. And I got in, and that meant I was apprenticing one day a week on an organic farm um, quite a way north of in the state where I was. But we made the trip up there and learned a lot about that. And we were growing concurrently on our small little place. We didn't have our big farm at that time. So okay. that really helped me get the confidence in, in that and then moving forward a year past that. And so I never really looked back and never really gave any, any consideration to what others thought about what I was doing.
0: So I'd be interested to know how being a second career farmer has influenced your farm. I mean, if you're if you're on the board of of an organization that does beginning farmer education work, uh, you must see a lot of people coming out of school and just, you know, jumping right into their agricultural career. What do you think's been different as a second career farmer uh, when you compare that to some of the people that you see going through as uh, first career farmers?
1: Well. Certainly as a first-career farmer, to be honest, you you most likely have more money. You have more financial resource to start farming. And we all know, we've been doing this for a while, that it takes a pretty good size amount of capital to really get this thing going and and quickly and before you try to become profitable. So I don't know what that number is, but I think as a second-career person, you have those financial reserves um, to take that challenge and to try that. Um, And then certainly it's a second-career person, whether you're military or not, the military just adds a different dimension to it, um, which is important, and I like that aspect to it. But I think certainly in the workplace, you've got more experiences. You've had challenges in a job before, um, and you thereby gained gain a degree of confidence of how to how to get through things. And while maybe a second career doesn't specifically have to do with agriculture, there are problems, as you all know as a farmer, that come up. And you've got to be able to deal with those quickly and efficiently. So there's a degree of confidence there. Um, A second career, you're more focused on achieving goals. I know when I was going to college as a a young adult, I I could barely stay in in class, let alone focus on what the achievements were. So now as an adult, I've learned how to do things and accomplish goals. And I think you also have a sense of your own limitations and and your own skills Um, and are more honest about that where you are. And and I would also think is if you're a second-career person, you're doing this because you've probably made a decision that you want to do something different than what your peers might be doing. There's a passion there. And most likely, what I've seen in the few second-career farmers I know, they, they like to become active. They want to really become um, advocates for the small, sustainable farming operation. So like me, they, they might be board members. They really want to. So I think a second career person most likely is going to get involved on just a level more than just at their own ground. They're going to be probably involved at a community level, I think, as well.
0: You talked about how your first career kind of prepped you for, uh, you know, things like understanding your limitations, uh, knowing how to stay focused on a goal. Can you, do you have a story that you can tell about that?
1: Certainly in the military, it's, it's not a, and I always had some kind of a part-time job as a kid growing up that was working you know, pushing lawnmowers or working a restaurant, something like that. And when you're in the military, as you well know, it's, you don't punch a clock. You are really mission driven. And so with that it that's kinda like you don't you don't quit until the job's done. Kinda sounds like farming, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's those kind of attributes that, that the military culture is really good at focusing. It brings that sort of stick to if you will, and saying, This has got to get completed. And at the same time the military is really good at giving People at a young age, a lot of responsibility and authority, and there's a lot of emphasis on teamwork. and in my background, which is naval aviation, there's a lot of attention to detail. The consequences of not repairing aircraft correctly can be pretty significant, when the con- and the content catastrophic. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, emphasis on making sure things done correctly and not taking that for granted. And, and with that, is a sense of accountability and trust to one another and teamwork. So. That's kind of a lot of the military context, and maybe that's that's not necessarily maybe unique to the military, but I think that's what I know, and I I think it's somewhat unique to the military. So those things came to me throughout my long career. I certainly faced plenty of challenges where I had to deal with complex things or dealing with lots of people and maybe not the most pleasant working environment and, but you know, things that you, you persevered and you push through. And, and a lot of those attributes I think lend themselves well to farming because you the best laid plan, even on a farm, Put together in, in my case, January or December, like December, doesn't always look the same. Come July or August, it's been tweaked a couple different times because things didn't go as planned, and so that that's really common too in a, in a military setting as well. Things don't always work out as you expected to, and but you still have this common goal and common mission to to get completed. So that's well. And I've cool always thought that kind of-
0: was one of the real important things about coming up with the plan and one of my one of my favorite quotes um and I I've, I've spent a lot of time listening to shows and and reading about World War 1 lately and I don't I mean I don't really have any experience with the military so I'm talking about something that I don't I don't really know about so I apologize if I'm stepping on toes but you know this idea that you you know you never go to you never go to battle without a plan, but the plan never survives the first contact with the enemy. And I've, I've, you know, I know this was something that came out of the quote, I think originated with a general in the Franco-Prussian war uh, back at the turn of the 19th century. And I've always thought that was interesting, you know, from farming, because a lot of times you talk to people and they'll say, well, why would I spend all this time planning out a rotation? Because the weather comes in you know, and you just never know. So why do we put all of this effort in or why would I want to spend all this time trying to figure out exactly how many people I'm going to need to employ this summer? Uh, Because every year is a little bit different and I might need more people or I might need less people. And I've always thought that idea of, of actually doing that planning work, a big part of that always seemed to me to just be Developing an awareness about what was going on in your world, and actually what the goals were, what might be reasonable to accomplish, and helping you to stay focused on that when you get into the, you know, when you get into the heat of battle. Again, it feels a little embarrassing to say that to somebody who was in the military, but you know, I, I like that idea, and especially when you think about that with farming, because it can be a pretty, it can be a pretty rapid fire standing in the ho- fire hose of reality, kind of a situation when you know you're uh, when, when you actually get into the season.
1: Well, that's interesting. i I'd never thought. I've always thought of having a plan was good, especially when you've got a lot of skin in the game as a vegetable farmer. Because certainly, if you're planning, if you're planning things, there's an expectation you're going to make money selling it. I, I don't. I would find a sort of abstract the idea that I would just sort of throw seeds out and hope something happened. I mean, I, I can't imagine that really anybody would do that. But so, for as far as a plan goes, for me, um, part of it's because we're certified organic, so there's a whole host of. Um, records that need to be maintained, which is also they work, serve themselves really well as a second attribute, which that is running the business, understanding what went on and what's going on. So you can come back at the end of the year and, and look at it. But as far as building a plan, we, we have a plan, a crop plan that I developed. I bounced it off my wife and it's about trying to anticipate looking backward, what we did, what worked, what didn't, um and maybe there's a seasonal seasonality to a particular crop that year we just didn't do it right or maybe we need to tweak the way we're growing it or and then also a sprinkling kind of a projection of a, of a growth because I don't want to overproduce something and then not have a home for it and so you asked me I asked about why I don't do a CSA because I I just at this point don't feel like I want to take on the extra work and then have to deal with all the logistics behind it but at the same time I don't want to do wholesale either where I just go to a a terminal market and try to sell something on the floor. So the only way to kind of put some sense to all that so I can sleep at night is to put a crop plan together, knowing full well that it's going to get, it's going to change throughout the course of the season. Things aren't going to be necessarily planted where they were, when they were supposed to be because of the weather or the location might end up differently or it didn't took longer to mature. But, um, the plan lends itself to really, to me, to running a, a really um, profitable operation. And I mentioned earlier, our farm was profitable by year three. So um, I think that speaks to something about having some organization and plan to sort of figure out what you want to do and how you want to do it.
0: Did you know when you started that your farm was going to make it to profitability in year three? Did you have a a business plan and have that stuff, that kind of stuff charted out. I mean, coming from your MBA background.
1: No, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know what? This is sort of interesting when you talk about the financial components of a farm, it's a little bit the New York times, you know, article last year or whatever this year about, you know, don't let your children be up at farmers so they can't make a living at it. Right. Remember that op-ed yeah. piece? Yeah. Yeah. And for anybody that's in this business, that probably just really rankled them. They did me too. I'm like, I'm going to show them, but um, no, with stepping back, is really hard. At least the, when we started, and I think somewhat still today, it's really difficult to figure out when you should be profitable. And one of the things I learned in talking to um, when I worked on a farm, apprentice to the training program, was those are kind of questions that we would talk about because I was curious to know what what should I expect and when should I should I expect it. And while it's still sort of nebulous, you have sort of an understanding of what it's possible to gross per acre, but then depending on your background when are you going to be able to be operating in the black and again and maybe a second career farmer can get there faster because maybe they have the financial resources to capitalize a little quicker using personal assets and then be re- and then paid back by the farm later in our case I, when we're farming 46 acres you can't do that with a walk behind tractor right no. Yeah. So, uh, and I decided, well, I'll just hire someone to do that. Well, fat, that didn't work because, you know, no, no one wants to fool around with something like that. And uh, it's just too small and they're too busy. And so quickly realized that if I was going to have to cover crop 46 acres, I needed a tractor and I was going to pull a 10 foot drill. I needed one with enough horsepower and four wheel drive to probably do it. And I ended up having to take some personal savings and purchase that tractor. So in a sense, been paid back by the farm to do that um, because the farm is an LLC and separate from my wife and myself. But um, so that maybe allowed us to achieve some profitability faster than somebody else. But I had no real benchmark for that. But I will tell you one thing that we started doing with some other area farmers. Um, who are growing like us. is We've done a financial review. We did it two years in a row around January where we've all kind of agreed in sort of a non-disclosure fashion. We would compare profit and loss statements and and, uh, P&Ls and income statements and sort of... And that was really insightful. We did that on our third year and... it was really reassuring with five other farmers who had been farming, and none of them came from – none of them were second career, by the way, to hear them compare notes and say, hey, you're doing really well, and because I couldn't find that information anywhere else. So that was a real boost, and then we did it last year, and they continued to say, you guys are doing really well, and you're you're ahead of the curve where other people are at this time or where we were in our case.
0: That's really great. I, I love that idea of, of sharing that that really sensitive financial information with other people. I mean, that uh, to have a group of folks that you can trust and, and really get close with some of that, well, that benchmarking that just seems to be really absent in our industry to understand how am I doing relative to everybody else. I think that's that's a really difficult thing to get your head around. And and it's an important point of comparison because otherwise you are just kind of operating in a vacuum. You don't really have anything to, to gauge your success against.
1: Right. And it's something that people often don't want to talk about because I, I guess the, let's be honest because maybe they're slightly embarrassed about it because they're working like fiends 80 hours a week and they're not, they're maybe big, basically making a, a barely a, a, a living wage.
0: And, and I want to, I actually want to probe a little bit around your, the, the fact that you guys were profitable in your third year, do you draw a salary from the LLC or do you just take that as, as a share of what's left over at the end of the year?
1: Great question, Chris. At this point, uh, since I have a pension and my wife has a good income from her job, I don't draw a salary. What we do, and we have the leftover at the end of the year from paying all the expenses would essentially be, we could take a draw. It, but at this point, since we're still in a building and a buildup stage, we essentially take that money and we just turn it right back in and, and and improve infrastructure or equipment. So I don't take a salary at this time. I, I feel it's more important to be able to develop the business to improve efficiencies and, and gain those things that, that make us um, an, a better operating farm.
0: Great. I really appreciate your willingness to be clear about that, because I think it's something that when we talk about farm finances that's unusual with, with farming is, is how much, how much the personal and the business tend to be intertwined. And so I know a lot of times when you start talking about profitability with people, it can mean very different things in different contexts. So I think that's really an important, an important element there that you're you're really reinvesting your profits back in the farm, not using that to pay family living expenses.
1: Yeah. That, that said, the farm carries itself. And it, it even they even has a we even the farm even pays rent to my wife and myself. Right. So, um, and it covers everything they would expect it to cover. But, but as I said earlier, if I needed, I needed a $25,000 tractor in the beginning, um, the farm, that was year Year one. The farm didn't obviously didn't have that kind of so I made a personal loan to the farm to do that. So
0: I I really like the way an LLC. Now my my farm was always a sole proprietorship. Uh we never we never incorporated in any in any fashion. But the I love the way that separation that the LLC provides, that idea that you, you mentioned that you can loan the farm twenty five thousand dollars or invest that money in the farm and then get that money paid back to you from the farm. And the idea also that the farm is paying you rent, I think really helps to clarify what portion of your property is the farm and what portion of it is, is you and your wife.
1: Right. No, I agree completely.
0: I really, I think that's, that's a a nice piece of clarity. How, why did you decide to do an LLC?
1: Well, as a second career person, we, we had, we had more, 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 more risk um, to, essentially, it was to protect right. our personal assets. Um, that was the most important reason, and that's, hence the name, limited liability. So, and, and it also, for sake of maybe filing with the IRS, you know, they get sort of fuzzy if they think it's – not fuzzy. They get a little bit agitated if they think a farm is, is, is a hobby and as, a not, as opposed to a business. So to make that clear distinction, and the sh- I'm, was it you or someone else recently said they thought Schedule F is really just a waiting for the IRS to check up on you?
0: <laughs> I really think that's all the Schedule F is for, yeah.
1: Right. So the more you can show them that, hey, this is really legitimate business, less likely in my mind they're going to start looking around. And because we're second-career people and we have savings um, and accumulated you know, personal wealth – um, through long careers, then it, I think it was important to maybe just separate those two aspects of our, of our farm from our personal lives.
0: Yeah. And again, I really, I really like that because it just, it, it just so much feels like it clarifies the relationship and that's, that's really, it seems like an important thing to do. All right. We're going to take a pause here, get a word from our sponsors and we'll be back in just a couple moments. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont's compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort VMix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent, fantastic product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell has a full-service agronomy department that provides support to their nationwide network of customers, dealers, and distributors. And Fertrell is about far more than just any one type of crop. They work with commodity and forage crops, large-scale vegetable and fruit farms, and small-scale and backyard growers, as well as livestock producers. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and the knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants. Plants and Animals. Their full line of soil amendments, dry blend and liquid fertilizers, and weed, pest, and disease control products for organic production means that they can help you to assemble a comprehensive system for organic farming. The Fertrell Company knows that healthy soils are the foundation for healthy crops, not just from a philosophical standpoint or for maximizing nutrition, but also because building healthy soils sets the stage for harvest efficiency, post-harvest quality, pest resistance, and succession planting. Fertrell. Better naturally. Trail.com. and now back to our show with Dave Polk of Sassafras Farm you know you talked about how being in the military you were in an environment where young people uh, were being given a lot of responsibilities in relatively short order and and it is something that I've always had the impression about about the military that you can move into not just leadership positions but also well, something like where you're you're doing aircraft maintenance when you're fresh out of high school. I mean, it's not like you you spend ten years getting to the point where you can get inside of a get inside of an engine. I'm curious how that's had an impact on on the work that you do with employees because you know, one of the things constant constant drum beats in conversations from farmers is that it's so hard to find good help. It's hard to find young people who are a willing to work, b willing to take on any responsibility, and c capable uh even of 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 having or acting with any degree of common sense. And it seems like a lot of what um in, from my outsider perspective that a lot of what the military provides training on is advanced common sense. <laughs> and 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 I think how is how, What kind of an impact has that had with you for trying to find help on the farm and how you've interacted with those folks? So I imagine it would be hard for a lot of the people that are interested in organic agriculture to meet up to those expectations.
1: Well, that's, that's a great question. And I guess, first of all... I, um, to this point, we've only hired one veteran, and he was a Marine, and uh, he really wanted to be more of a chef than a farmer. So they sort of figure – you sort of figure out what – but to this point, the people we hire are um, – they're drawn to the farming just for same many of the same reasons we are. They none, none of them come from military backgrounds, and so for me – um, we don't necessarily have a chain of command because we're so small as we would in the military to be a layer of people at different levels to be, and everybody understands their exact roles. But at the same time, I try to, I try to put our plan. I try to run a tight ship, so to speak, I, which means that when people come in, there's a plan we know what we're going to do that day. We have a little meeting in the morning we let we lay out who's going to do what we lay out the expectations i try to put time gates to each thing if i know we're going to for instance harvest some crop i try to do experience which is still evolving in my time and as i introduce more efficiencies on a farm, figuring out how long it's going to take so there's an expectation of how long the job's going to take and and then we the sort of seek a sense of clarity that's the way we always ran meetings in the military And then, um, when I, and I check up on the people with their, if we're not working together or if they're divided in a team or something. So I think you run as any, any organization, which is doing kind of hands-on work would, would run those same sort of practices. And so, um, in terms of, I, I try to instill responsibility with the people. I, we talk about that occasionally, you know, when, when the mower runs over the strawberry beds and hits five, six metal hoops, and they, t- they took them out last week, and <laughs> he missed a few, then we yep. we have a conversation about accountability and about attention to detail. I'm not, you know, we don't shoot anybody, but make the point across and recognizing that you have to maybe train people to be uh, um, focused that way. So, and at the same time, when I interview people, we always do a working interview on the farm. I can learn a lot in the in a really short order on just how people move. And there's, as you like to call situational awareness, how they're paying attention to details, even if they don't know anything about farming, you can learn a lot very, very quickly. And so I like to do that because that gives me a sense of what the possibilities are if I hire this person to work on the farm.
0: Whether they're actually going to be fully engaged or not.
1: Yeah, you don't know completely. But I think generally speaking, we have a pretty good track record and um, of hiring good people. And I I like them. I couldn't do the job without them, and we're constantly training them. and And, and I'm also I'm also really big in, in my military background to making sure that the people who work for me always have the right training and the right tools, and the expectations were made clear up front. So I try to run my farm the same way, making sure that there's no shortcomings that I'm responsible for. Hey, equipment's broken, or I didn't seek to, I didn't tell them exactly not exactly, but give them enough latitude to do it. A little bit to my expectations, but a little wiggle room that they can try it on their own. All that it builds confidence, and then recognizing when things don't go right, that there's there's accountability. We're we're going to talk about what didn't work right and what we can do to improve about improve it. So that's kind of how I've always operated in my military career, and so I run the farm the same way.
0: In the military, did you get training on those sorts of leadership skills? Hey, this is if you if you're going to be if you're going to be telling people what to do, this is what's involved in that.
1: Um, the short answer is a little bit, but in my particular, maybe more so. I can only speak to the Navy where I was. Um, certainly that those are those are, but really it's more of a culture that you're expected to understand. There are some courses you take and some training throughout your career at different times, but um. A lot of it is really just the culture that lends itself to understanding that and understanding that there's responsibilities and accountability for what you're doing, and you're part of a team, and you have the training to do those things. And the expectations are that if if you do your job, the team, the mission is completed. If you don't, there's a problem, and so there's accountability to that. And the military environment also is is such that uh, maybe it's like corporate America too, but it's up or out. You either promote and, and move up and the business is re- increasing responsibility or you're at some point said, look, this isn't working out for us or for you and it's time to find something else and show the door. So it works that way as well.
0: I think it's something that is oftentimes overlooked when we put people in leadership positions, whether it's whether it's a beginning farmer with their first employee or whether it's it's putting in that middle level of management on a farm is that leading people is a is a skill in and of itself. You know, it it requires, it requires some attention to things that just doing the job yourself doesn't. And I know it was something we struggled with, God, I struggled with it tremendously on my farm uh, when I, when I was getting started. And it was, it was actually a source of a lot of, a lot of pain and frustration for me and my family and, and the, and our employees. And uh, it really took a long time to get to, to kind of clarify some of the principles around that. I really liked what you said about just, you know, even how you run the meeting you know, just being very kind of having a pattern for how that goes and how that information is communicated. Well, yeah. And, like and, really...
1: and clearly there, you know, my, you asked me, I think early, where do I see the farm going in the future? And yeah. at, at the five year mark, I, um, we sort of developed a business plan and I would, it would sort of laugh if I looked back on it because it was more notional than real. But um, I would have to say right now, part of it goes back to our uh, immediate goal is to become happier farmers, <laughs> my wife and myself. And uh, what I mean by that is, um, I don't necessarily want to continue to work 12 or 14 hours a day doing the physical work that comes with the farm. But at the same time, I'm not ready to to do, you know, go out put out the pasture. So, so what I'm doing at this point is, we spend a lot of time developing our farming systems and and making sure that when I say those systems, figuring out how we're going to grow a crop and making sure they're repeatable and they're teachable. The worst thing on, and I'm as guilty as the next person is a new farmer, you know, not knowing exactly how you're going to do something. And then midway through you you change your tack or next week you change your tack. And that's really confusing to a new, to employees. Like, which way you want me to do it? Make it freaking mine. Right? (laughs) Right. So, um, So a year five, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and and having a network of mentors to me who have been doing this a lot longer than I have and and talk to them, go to their farms and study what they do and figure out how they do things efficiently because they've learned those lessons and I'm trying to learn it as fast as possible. So to me, that's all about developing farm systems and making sure that what works on their farm is something I can do and I can repeat it consistently from season to season. And then I can instruct people how to do that and the idea being that those processes, however you bunch beets, you know, if you're reading Roxbury's farms, you know, his manual, John Paul's manual on how to bunch this and time sorts for that. And all those things to me, I think a lot about. So we're developing those things and at the same time, putting an in infrastructure on our farm to increase efficiencies. Um, by example, this year, we, we built a new a new barn that has your favorite material called concrete in it, Right
0: love me some concrete.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we've got concrete on the floor where we're doing our washing, the walk-in coolers there, and it's just a huge, huge change from a lot of where we were before, which is, you know, outside and, and different set up there. So, but it has a huge amount of efficiency to the farm and also it's a huge morale builder. And so we're working on teaching, working on developing our systems, increasing efficiencies, and then ultimately, I'm trying to figure out where I can hire, a, like, a full-time assistant, somebody who can take some of the workload off of me. So I can – the fact is the farm is probably better off if, if I'm spending more time doing strategic work. By that, I mean refi- refining our systems, developing our infrastructure, um, helping market our products, rather than, than, than out there harvesting kale or weeding carrots.
0: I think it's all, it's the hard thing about being in the farming business is most of us got into it because we like bunching kale, and, uh, and then and then what you end up with is is that you're as the farmer oftentimes needed much more at that strategic level, um, you know that level one or two up from what's actually happening out in the field,
1: right on a day to right. basis. So, so that point there is, you know, and strategically, someone's got to be running, steering the ship. And if you're in there pulling weeds here in the engine room, you know, who the hell's on the bridge, right?
0: Well, and I think that actually goes back to that idea of situational awareness. One, one anecdote that I read a long time back was that the Coast Guard did, some, did a study of why their ships were running aground. You know, cause it's, it's a bad thing when a boat runs around in the, in the coast guard, you, you lose your job.
1: Yeah. We call that in the Navy. That's a no band change of command. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you know, in order to avoid these no band change of commands, what they were, they were looking for, why, why, why was this a problem? And what they found is that in the vast majority of cases, when a when a ship ran aground or ran into another ship, it was because of a loss of situational awareness. It was that nobody was driving the boat, and so you essentially had they were dealing with some other crisis, or they just simply took their hand off the wheel. And again, boats. It's been a long time since I've been on a boat, but um, you know, just not not being aware of the direction that the ship was traveling in because they were so busy dealing with other details, whether, you know, whether it was putting out a fire or whether it was responding to a radio call or whether it was just being distracted and laughing in the back of the cabin, um, that they, they didn't, they weren't paying attention to what was going on around them. Yeah.
1: When I was in flight school in the Navy, they call that getting your head out of the cockpit. (laughs) Yeah, Quit staring at the gauges. Yeah. That's important, but, you know, situational awareness is something that you're taught and paying attention. So, yeah, strategically, I think that's super important that me as a farmer, and that's what I want to do. That's not how I know how to do the things. I know how to do it, but at the same time, when you have – my whole, my crew is all green. They're all new. They're great. I love them to death, but I have to spend time doing things you, maybe not necessarily but have to do with someone more experienced. Sort of a quick quick anecdote there yesterday – It's been rainy. as crazy here. So this summer and high heat and humidity. And so that means it's just a target rich environment for weeds, right? So I asked my crew, I said, hey, we're going to break out some of my favorite tools. What's that? It's the push lawnmower and the weed eater. And I said, have you guys ever operated one of these before? And they said, no. And I said, "Well, I'm going to teach you how to work a weed eater." And I, I was joking with the one guy, and, and I said, "You never seen a weed eater before?" He goes, "He's from New York City." He goes, "People in New York City don't have weed eaters." And I said, "Good point." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, I taught him how to use a weed eater. You know, but that's something that maybe many of us take for granted. But you know, he got the hang of it quickly, and we're off and running. So, I spend time doing that. But that's again where I want to kind of take the farm as more more strategic and. That um, is important to me. So, kind of the second part of that question, where we where do we want to take the farm in the future? Some of it sort of needs-driven. I know in your interview with Alex Hitt. He talked about the farm was great, sufficient at having two people paid, and life was good. When he took on a transition to having a third employee, he needed to up the, he needed to amp it up a little bit, earn some more money to carry that third person. Well, that's kind of how I right. see the farm. as I in, endeavor to find more skilled people and maybe an assistant farmer that can free me up a little bit and do some of the more management on the task at a, at a field level, then I would essentially build a crop plan that would, and I'd work to sell more produce to pay for that person. So that's a needs driven, you know, farm at this point.
0: And it's always an interesting stepwise process in staffing up is that you, you know, you do need to in- improve your income or increase your income to to be able to staff up, but you need to staff up to increase your income. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a delicate balancing act there because you can't just double the size of your farm next year and bring on an assistant farm manager all at once. That's probably not going to work. It's something that you kind of have to, you have to grow into rather than just jumping into.
1: Yeah. I've heard Alan Polshak say before from Potomac Vegetable Farm, the more people I have, the more money I make. And I, I feel like I need to call her up and ask her. Can you explain how that works again?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's an, that's something that works uh, to a point. But I think I think for her, and she's she and I have talked about about this idea quite a bit. It, it just gives her the chance to do the management. Right. It gives her the chance to be focused on the things that she really needs to be focused on. And some of that is out in the field working with people but being able to pay attention to what they're doing right. rather than having to be working on being productive herself. Right. You know, because those are really two different focuses and it's the same thing you're talking about on a, on a more macro level is, is this idea of, of getting in an assistant farm manager who can, who can be paying attention to getting the weeds pulled, but so that you can focus at that next higher level. You know. And so I think it, it really does kind of run up and down that ladder is creating that capacity to not have to be absorbed in the details so that you can be you can be looking around and paying attention to how people are paying attention well, to the details. Yeah,
1: and clearly to me, that's when people talk about scaling up and growing the business, that's really the first place to start in my mind. Is that how are you going to do that in terms of, and especially with employees, who's going to do what, who's going to be responsible for what, and how are you going to pay those salaries and how are you going to recruit those people as opposed to just, well, I'll just plant more kale, damn it. I think I think that a lot of farmers may be in trouble when they just try to do it that way.
0: I did. More, <laughs> than, more than once. I mean, more often than I'd like to admit. Yeah, that definitely was a, definitely a story at Rock Spring Farm that we repeated a couple of times before we really <laughs> learned our lesson.
1: Okay, well that's
0: good to hear. I'm- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I I do think that's one of the things you'll you'll find Dave is is there's a there's a lot of stories about screwing things up out there and people don't people don't always tell them, but you know, I I can uh I think almost every farmer that I've worked with over the years can uh I I know some I know mistakes that they've made along the way that aren't part of their public profile. And everybody everybody makes some screw-ups big time as you, as you go through the business. So do you have a, do you have a plan for like where your business is going again as a second career farmer and not a, not with 10 years of career, but I think with 25 years of career uh, behind you in the military, you've got your, you don't have 50 years to build a business. No, you've, You know, it's something that's going to, going to carry you into retirement and not just end up being a bunch of machinery sitting in the field. Do you, do you have a trajectory that you're on? Do you have an end point that you're going towards?
1: That's a great question. I, I don't want to be one of these farmers that dies on the tractor, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And because I'm second career, I, I know how to transition from one thing to another. And I don't necessarily feel like my whole life is going to come to an end if I don't farm. Uh, I can envision myself. At some point going, look, I'm getting too rusty and too crusty to be able to move around with some sort of dexterity to operate this business. And right now I'm in, I'm in excellent health and so is my wife. Um, I guess we got good genes. And so I feel like we can keep going that way. But when I project out, part of it has to do when, with what, her, what she wants to do when she wants to, to retire from her job. And then the other part of it is just looking around other farmers who I know who are who are pushing 60s or even more and going, you know, kind of looking at them and figuring out what they're doing and how they're doing it and then going, do I want to do it that way? Do I want to maybe sign off earlier? So it's an ongoing conversation with my wife and myself about where we want to go. But the right immediate thing, as I said, was to sort of find more help at a higher level. Um, on the farm and, and making sure that that help is employed year round. I think that's super important to avoid the the, the seasonality of the work. Where you can keep people and you can keep them on payroll. Maybe if it's reduced during winter months. And by the way, we have two high tunnels. I'd love to have about three more, so we continue to grow almost twelve seasons, twelve months out of the year. So that's sort of the short term goal. The long term goal is, I, I guess, I would sort of feel like when when I'm there and but. It, it also strategically speaks to what, why we got in this in the first place. It wasn't because um, maybe it's different. Maybe it's not different for any other new farmer because we wanted to make a difference. Wanted to be involved. think it's an important calling and it's a noble work. And so I guess when you feel like it's no longer, you're no longer meeting those goals. And I guess at some point I realize, Hey, it's time to transition. So short answer is I don't have a plan yet, Chris. That's fair. But I, but I also know, you know, that I, I'm not naive enough to know that, hey, I'm going to just wake up one morning and go, I quit. That's not going to happen. We'll we'll put it together. It's an active conversation. I mean, how long should a farm be, be before it's considered successful? Shoot, the USDA still says I'm a new farmer. I got five more years, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, I think that's a really, I mean, it's a really interesting definition. There aren't too many other careers where you'd be considered to be a beginner for the first 10 years that you're in it.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Oh,
0: and I do think it's an, it is an interesting question. You know, how long, how long does a farm need to be around to be considered stable? And I think that's true with any business. I mean, you know, I remember, um, I mean, uh, you know, I both, I, you and I've got to be close to the same age. I mean, I, we remember brands that were, that were stalwarts when we were young that are gone now. You know, and then I don't think, I don't think that being around for 25 years or 50 years or a hundred years is necessarily a guarantee that you're going to be around next year. Uh, in any case, uh, I know it certainly increases the likelihood, but I don't think it ever, I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know that you ever end up with that kind of level of stability that just says here, I've made it. Right. You know, especially on the farm, cause there's just so many, there are so many things that are outside of your, outside of your control.
1: I think, I think for the most part, as long as we we think we're making a difference and we're we're balancing our quality of life, and that's very subjective, and and we're still having fun, I think we'll continue to do it. and And I'm pretty. I think both my wife and I know ourselves well enough to know that when when we're reaching kind of the point we need to look to do something different. And maybe it's ten years from now. I don't know. I'll put that number out there. And so we'll keep on learning our operation, we'll keep on growing our business, we'll keep on refining our systems, and part of our also is our goal is to to hire, you know, really people that want to do this work, and so we'll keep hiring people and inspiring them, and hopefully we'll, we'll, out of that group of people we keep hiring, we'll find a couple new farmers that really want to continue the operation.
0: Well, and that's certainly been a theme with, with some of the older operations that I've been talking to recently, that they're, they are finding those people. And sometimes it's just a matter of being patient and recognizing it when they come along and taking advantage of it, instead of necessarily having a plan that says, you know, well, in, in the year 2022, I'm going to have an employee that's going to get me, you know, that's going to want to take over the farm. Right. So that's, it really is kind of just keeping your eye out and knowing, knowing when you've got the right situation and then taking the right steps to start making that happen. Do you
1: think that's more difficult in some areas of the country than others?
0: I don't really have a perspective on that. I don't know. I mean, I would think, um, I mean, I, I guess I would guess that some of it would have to do with real estate pricing. I mean, how much asset are you trying to transfer? Right. Um, I, I would imagine that it has more to do with the personality of the farmer than anything else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, are you, I I think the farmers that are that are that I see doing those transitions are people who've shown a willingness to be uh, comfortable giving up authority, comfortable giving up decision making power. And, you know, if you're if you're really still in that mode of I need to be in charge of everything, it's really hard to bring somebody in and give them a significant amount of responsibility. And yet that's what you have to do if you're going to have somebody. If you, I mean, a, if you're going to identify somebody as being a good candidate for taking over the farm, you know, particularly if you're wanting them to be investing in it over a period of time, uh, you need to see that somebody's got that level of responsibility. Because so you got to give it to them. That's a hard thing to do for a lot of people.
1: Well, uh, one attribute in the military is that you move on to new jobs and new assignments. So inevitably, you build up your. Do you you think you're the best who ever was, and then three years later, in the case of most. You're moved on to another, and then you turn it over to somebody else. So that's something that, that anybody in the military has been around for a while is very familiar with turning over the reins because you have no choice, and um, and so that's kind of neat. Um, I'm used to doing that. And I like doing that because I, part of the military is because we're running some really big, complicated operations. You need to rely on people to do things and, and have those skills and, and a lot of delegation. You never, you never give up the responsibility. The buck stops at the top, but it, ultimately you have to rely on people to do the right job and train them to do it. So I'm worrying, worrying, more than happy to turn over things to, to, to people. Cause I know how to do all that.
0: And then I think the other thing that, that you've got set up there that I think is, again, kind of tilts towards success is the fact that you've already got a structure for the farm that makes it an entity other than you. You know, having that corporate structure really, I think, facilitates the transfer of ownership in a way that is difficult to do with a sole proprietorship. And that's something that Alex talked about. Alex hit right. uh, in my interview with him a couple of weeks ago was – you know, they're basically their, their new partner who's going to take over the farm. They're giving her shares. She's earning shares in the farm. So she's essentially gaining stock. And that's something that's very difficult to do if you don't have a structure in place for it already. And I think the LLC, at least if I understand how LLCs work correctly, gives you a similar opportunity to bring somebody in at, a, at an increasing level over time. So that you're, you're seeding ownership, not all at once, but over a period of years, which is certainly easier from an investment standpoint for a, for a new business owner or somebody coming into that, that role. I agree completely. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a question. You talked a little bit at the beginning about the, and, and this is a real, this is kind of taking a left turn here, but you talked at the beginning about being in the Chesapeake Bay watershed and that there was funding available for certain environmental practices that that are available to you because you're in that that high-risk watershed. But I also know that that's something that comes with some additional regulations. Is that something you've had to deal with you know regarding fertilizer applications or or other other practices?
1: You know that's an excellent question. Um, The short answer is um, I'm required by law as any farm is of any size to have a, what's called a nutrient management plan. I don't know if that's a term that's used elsewhere in the country. Yes, it is. Okay. And so that's based on soil samples. And in my case, and in many farms in our region, we, we're high in phosphorus and that's something that is, um, way to the watershed and so forth. And because our farm was a traditional like Southern Maryland farms grew tobacco for many, many years, probably hundreds. In some cases, we have a high reserve of legacy phosphorus. So I'm limited somewhat because of the phosphorus is a pacing item on my nutrient management plan. So I'm limited as a organic farmer. It's just how many, um, Some of the fertility I can use, and of itself, it doesn't necessarily slow me down right now, but I I have to be careful to make sure my phosphorus levels are not too high. And it seems as though those levels – this is a real hot topic here in in Maryland and around the watershed – Um, making sure that uh, the phosphorus levels are maintained. And there's a new phosphorus management tool that's been put into place, very controversial, especially with the poultry industry on the Eastern Shore. Um, There's a lot of excess um, phosphorus in poultry. And so um, the plan is sort of set to monitor and manage those things. But on a larger scale, I'm generally not affected by the regulations because I'm an organic farm. I don't have a lot of runoff. I have cover crops all over my farm. Really, my limitation is, my nutrient management plan inheriting high phosphorus levels on my soil in the first place. So I have to be careful if I'm using organic fertilizers to make sure I don't exceed the phosphorus levels on my farm. And I have to watch that carefully, but that's kind of where it is for me right now.
0: So, all right, well, let's, let's move into the lightning round here, Dave. Sure. Okay. So uh, we're going to start off. These are the questions that we like to ask everybody who's, who comes on the show. Um, And I'd like to start with what's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: My favorite tool. Well, my favorite tool, Chris, on the farm is probably going to surprise you, but it's their water wheel transplanter.
0: I hate water wheel
1: transplanters. Really?
0: Yeah. Oh, man. There's just, well, and, and maybe it's because I was always trying to use one on bare soil, which they're not designed for, but it, boy, they just drove me crazy.
1: <laughs> we use ours on a lot of plastic culture because we're in a subtropical environment and we're trying to manage weeds. Um, I, I like it. I, I bought it last year and I agonized over it for it because I kept hearing pros and cons against it. Oh, you're not big enough. Oh, I'm faster, et cetera. I would tell you that for me, the number one thing it reduces plant mortality. I mean, to have that instant drink of water right there on that plant is hugely important. We we watched our our transplants; the higher, much higher success than we had before. And then, the whole thing about being faster—I I don't know that I agree with that. I I think we can we can transplant with the best of them, and we used to do it by hand. So I have some basis to make that statement. And the third thing is, um. Everybody wants to use the water wheel transplanter, the workers. That just makes them much more happier and they're fresher. If you don't bang it out by hand, maybe it's slightly faster, but at the end of the day, they're creaking and groaning because they've been crawling around their hands and knees putting in transplants. So well, I will,
0: I will agree that that's definitely a, an important role for any kind of a transplanter it's just getting you off of your hands and knees. And, and it's a transplanting by hand is a young man's game.
1: <laughs> Amen. So that's my favorite tool.
0: And which what kind of water wheel transplanter do you have, Dave?
1: Uh I bought one from Buckeye um out in Ohio. And yeah, I like that with piece the, of equipment it's got the for, adjustable wheels yeah, I, on yeah, it. Yeah, we we um currently have two set two complete sets of axles. So I've got one set up for tomatoes and cucurbits, that kind of row spacing, and sweet potatoes, and then I have another one that's got four wheels on it because I like to do four rows of things like lettuce, and so I can interchange those wheels within literally five minutes, ten at most. So. Um, it kind of the sky's the limit on how many wheels you want to buy. They're not that expensive, and so we just shift them in and out.
0: That was actually a really important change. We had a Buckeye uh, water wheel transplanter as well, and it was the first transplanter we had on our farm, and and it did make a huge difference for us. I. You know, I say I hate the water wheel, but I I really I think it was more a circumstance of how we were using it. We had soil blocks on our farm that we were doing the transplants in. So a lot of transplanters won't work with soil blocks. And so we were we were kind of trying to jimmy together a system. And like I said, we were always on bare soil, which meant we were dealing with a lot of a lot of clogging and a lot of a lot of just messiness in that way but it but it was boy it was a huge improvement over over doing it by hand but definitely having the the multiple axles and not having to spend the time <laughs> trying to change the spacing uh, you know, underneath the transplanter, but actually being able to, to to just swap things out very quickly made a huge difference and was worth every penny we spent on the extra wheels and the extra axles.
1: Absolutely, you do that one or two times and go, it's worth a hundred bucks to buy the extra wheel and, and punches. So yeah, I learned that quickly. What kind
0: of tractor are you
1: driving that with? Uh, I like equipment. So I actually have several tractors um, that sort of like a lot of farmers, I think farmers, a lot of us are gearheads, right? So uh, yep. I'm I'm in that camp, and um, you never just have one. So I pull it with a Kubota that has a creeper gear. It's the tractor I bought new, and then I recently, last year, bought a, an older International Hydro 70 with a hydrostatic transmission. So I have two large tractors, and for me, large tractors for me, but I can set up and one might have a, I have an Emont spader. So I might have a spader on one, a mower on another, and we'll flip flop back and forth depending so we can kind of get in and get out and not have to do tractor swapping or equipment swapping.
0: Two reliable tractors was another huge revelation on my farm when we did that. It just made, it made life just a lot easier, just a whole lot easier. What's your favorite crop to grow, Dave?
1: This may sound unusual, but my favorite crop to grow are onions. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like them for lots of different reasons because there's a, I, for where I am, there's a good demand for them. And, um, I like, I like them as a crop that I, if I can get it to grow correctly and I can get them cured and they'll store for many months and you can't start a meal without an onion. So there's always a good, strong demand for it, both at the retail level and wholesale level. Um, I also add that it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky sucker to grow too, um, and some years we can pull it off and some years we, we get kinda kinda take a step backwards. And so I'm moving more and more to growing more onions um over winter. I've been experimenting with that and I've been having really good results in doing overwinter onions. So onions my favorite crop, but I still have to learn how to do it a little bit better.
0: Are you doing are you doing specialty onions or are you just primarily sticking with the, the reds and the yellows?
1: What do you mean by specialty, Chris?
0: Do you mess around with things like the Cipollini onions or the, or the, you know, shallots, other things, you know, the, there's that red torpedo, or I think it was called red long of tropia. Um, are you just really sticking with those, those round red hard onions?
1: We're doing all the above red onions, okay. white onions, uh, yellow onions. And, uh, this year we probably grew 50,000 shallots and, um, it, it wasn't my best shallot crop. We, we got hot early and, and humid and I had some problems getting them out of the field to cure properly. And we also do cippellinis, which I keep saying I'm going to swear off, but you know, over the winter time when you're still hanging around, you're going, Hey, I'm going to try chipolinis one more time. The, the pain of the battle is long since forgotten. And you get sucked into doing it once again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, I always like growing the chipolinis cause we get a really good price for those. Yeah. And uh, it was just, a it was a matter of, it was a matter of being willing to charge enough money for them to make it worth doing.
1: Well, one of the things that we, I'm still trying to get answers here after talking to people and indirectly to Bijou is, um, the seed guys, um, it's certainly for shallots. Is that can I overwinter them? And the consensus right now is both cipollini's and shallots cannot be overwintered at our latitude, which is 38 degrees. The 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 thinking is that they'll bolt. If they'll survive winter, but they'll bolt in the springtime. So I don't know yet. It's a, it's on my experiment list for this winter is to grow a small trial of them and see if it if it works. If it does, I think it'd be awesome. If not, we'll probably continue to grow shallots because there's there's really good really good money in those, and I like the idea that they can be stored, you know, indefinitely, almost.
0: What are you doing for a curing setup on on a crop that that's important that's that important for you?
1: Oh, you know, I I need help there. I remember I think in this at the Moses conference this year, you, you gave a presentation or at least touched base on that. Um, and yeah, currently yeah. what we're doing is using our greenhouse. Uh, with shade cloth on it, and on uh, using tables and fans. That seems to be kind of the, the common method. But I, in this spring, we had so much high, so much rain. We've had excessive amounts of rain, the high humidity, that it just really got different, difficult to cure those things down. So I'm really interested in understanding how to put a heat source to them, maybe an uh, external heat source to dry them down faster. And I haven't quite figured out – I haven't found the publication that tells me how to do that.
0: That's exactly what we did on our farm, and it made – it didn't make a huge difference every year, but when it did make a difference, it made a tremendous difference in the, in the quality of what we were able to put out, what we were able to output with the onions and the shallots. And those shallots were just a really important crop for us for, they really paid our trucking all winter long for the other things that we were selling. Wow. And, uh, you know, and, and well, it's I mean shallots are so great because you can you know you put together a five nights bushel box of of shallots and you've got a hundred dollars at wholesale, right. and it's it's just good money. And if you can if you can figure out how to do it without having a ton of labor going into it, um, you know, and and also not having a huge coal rate, which of course helps with the labor, uh, it just. I mean, we we ended up with a really slick system for that. I keep meaning to write that up, but I'm not going to I'm not going to try to describe it here without the pictures.
1: Well, I look forward to reading that.
0: Well, we'll we'll let you we'll have something on the blog when it becomes available for sure. This is kind of a funny question for somebody that's only been farming for five years, Dave. But if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: You know, uh, that's not such a funny question because at some point we started getting – I got the idea that I wanted to get into this before I, I knew I was going to retire. So maybe – I don't remember. Maybe it was four years. But what I would have done – and we started doing all the homework and started asking questions and going to visiting farms and reading lots of books an extensive library at this point. But the one thing I didn't do – that I should have done was I should have taken a farm vacation when I had the chance. I should have found found some of the best farms in the country that I thought were on the scale that I wanted to be, and I probably should have called the farmer up and said, hey, can I come out and volunteer on your farm for a week or so or five days, whatever? And I think I would have learned a ton of things. I know I would have learned a ton if I had done that. And so that's what I would have told my younger self
0: it's one of the things that I feel really blessed with was having the opportunity to work on a lot of different farms before I finally started my own. I think it really helped us to, to get off on, on the right foot, at least to some degree. Uh, but, but having that experience of just seeing a lot of different ways of getting things done really, well, really mattered. It really mattered, really made a big difference in our operation. So,
1: um,
0: you said you spend a lot of time now going out and visiting other farms.
1: Right. Not so much now. I'm fortunate enough to have a a network of mentors who are way more experienced than me and, um, one of them is, is close enough that I can go to his farm and he's been doing it for 30 years and he's certified organic and he's, he's really a cool, cool farmer. And and he's very open with me and we've earned a trust and befriended each other. And so I can ask him a lot of questions and he's helpful to do that with me. So he's a reliable resource. And then I have the, the training, the farm I trained on in Maryland and I don't call him and we talk frequently. And there's a handful of other farms that are kind of I wouldn't say on speed dial, but that I can pick up the phone and, and we can compare notes. And I like that about the community of, we'll say, sustainable farmers. I, I've learned that I don't think I think that's a, that's a unique um, commodity in what we do, that if you look at, dare I say the conventional operations, there's not as much sharing of information where I don't think that's the case with the um, sustainable communities.
0: Yeah. It's very rare in my experience to find somebody on the organic and sustainable farming world that won't tell you just about everything about (laughs) everything that they're doing. Really? Well, and of course, I mean, you know, here I am doing the podcast, right? You're a facilitator, an enabler. You're giving up your time on a Wednesday. I'm an enabler. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dave. (laughs) All right. Dave, thank you so much for, for coming. And like you say, participating in this tradition that we have in this community of, of sharing your, your experience and your expertise.
1: Well, I don't know that I, but I don't know if I have much experience or expertise, but I certainly like to talk about this and I really appreciate the opportunity. And hopefully that some other folks are listening have learned a few things from us. And certainly they can go to our website and give us a phone call. If they want to talk more about it, we, I live this stuff pretty much 24 seven, enjoy it tremendously.
0: It's great. And we'll have your, we'll have your website. We'll be on the show notes, but why don't you go ahead and tell us what that is uh over the air right now as well.
1: It's uh Sassafrascreekfarm.com, S-A-S-S-A-F-R-A-S, that's a mouthful, creekfarm.com. And we have Facebook and we've got Instagram and all that good stuff. And like every smart farmer, we carry a smartphone and take pictures. We like to show off what we're doing. Not so much the mistakes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, keep those. There, there ought to be like the separate Facebook page for for your farm friends, yeah, as opposed to your customers. We'll call that right? the
1: Wall of Shame or something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Dave. I
1: appreciate it, Chris. Thank you.
0: All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode twenty-five of the Farmer to Farmer podcast, and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com dot com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Palk. That's Paulk. That's P A U L K. Dave and I talked a bit about getting a write-up together on my old onion curing setup, and that's exactly the sort of thing I talk about in my weekly email newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga. The Flying Rutabega runs the gamut from practical templates for delegation to guidelines for watering transplants to time management hints. You can sign up at farmer dot com or purplepitchfork.com it's worth noting that the show does take a substantial amount of time to produce and not a little bit of money our sponsors like vermont compost and fur for this episode and osborne seed company second cup media and audible for previous shows really support this work accessing their web pages through the show notes and sponsorship page on my website provides them with a way to measure your engagement And of course, so does mentioning that you hear their ad on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Please make sure you let them know when you're in contact with them. And one more thing, if you've hung on for this long, I'd like to know what questions you, my listener, have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. Please let me know on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork or use the contact page on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. If we choose your question to use on air, I'll even send you a Farmer to Farmer podcast mug. Keep weathering the weather, be safe out there, and keep that tractor running.